Hey friends, I wanted to take a few seconds before the pod to talk about our amazing sponsor and good friends of the show, Wilderness Labs, who just launched their first Kickstarter for their brand new .NET powered IoT platform called Meadow. It combines the best of all worlds, the power of Raspberry Pi and the computing factor of an Arduino. The best part is that it runs full .NET meaning that you can run .NET standard 2.0 libraries right on this thing. The brand new board gets full over-the-air updates, so you're always up to date. It integrates with NuGet, so you can integrate with your cloud backends or other libraries that you're already using. It has super awesome documentation with simple guides and samples to get started. And of course, you're going to want to plug a bunch of things into here. So their Kickstarter has not only just the board that you can get started with or all of the additional peripherals that you need, toggle switches, LCDs, all that stuff. And they have great plug and play libraries so you can get started fast. This is honestly the first time that I felt like I could actually build IoT applications because I know C Sharp and .NET. So all you have to do is head over to mergeconflict.fm slash meadow, which will take you to their Kickstarter page. You can get a meadow F7 board and breadboard starting at just $50 pledge. And it goes up from there with awesome swag, all the peripherals that you need. I personally got the pro pack because I want everything. I want to thank Wilderness Labs for sponsoring this episode of the pod and head over to mergeconflict.fm slash meadow to learn more. And on with the show. Frank, 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 it finally happened. New Mac Minis. Ooh, new Mac Minis. Did you buy the six-pack? Oh, I totally bought a six-pack. I need one for every single room. In fact, more than the rooms that I have. (laughs) It did come with six cores, so I thought that was kind of an omen. So you really should, you know, get on it. Because you've been talking about it forever. You kept saying, I want to buy a Mac, but I don't want to get anything with a monitor. I want a Mac Mini. And now, are you going to put up? (laughs) Uh, probably not. I don't know. It's Aww. a very beautiful design. I, you know, I've been, I've, I like how they said re-engineered in no small way. It's like you d- didn't do anything. Come on. Like they literally did nothing. It's the same thing. It's, it's a new hard drive enclosure. <laughs> cause I, I know cause you can't change the hard drive. So if you do buy one, make sure you get the big hard drive. I'm just happy that by default for $800, which is more than what it was before, that it gives you a lot more bang for the buck. I'm a little disappointed in the 128 gig option, to be honest. But besides that, I'm kind of happy. Well, tell me, because I didn't actually look up any of the specs, and especially not the minimum specs. So tell me what they are. So by default, you're going to get a, actually, eighth generation i3 quad-core processor, eight gigs of RAM, and a one- 28 gigabyte SSD hard drive. That all sounds good, except for the i3. I didn't know they made those anymore. Okay. That I kind still of do. If you, if you want an i7 at $300. Okay. That's not actually too bad to get yourself up to an i7 because that's a good chip. So that puts you above. Okay. So that's at 1100, you can have a six core i7. That's a good deal. Correct. Okay. Now, if you want to double your RAM, so 8 gigs is the default. If you want that sweet, sweet 16, add $200. Ouch. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I, I hate the you, price of Apple RAM. Apple hard drive is worse, but Apple RAM is up there. So you can get 64 gigs of sweet, sweet DDR4 RAM in this puppy for an extra $1,200. Of course. Of course. You know, you <laughs> could just buy four computers or get some RAM. I don't know. Which one do you want? What does the iPad come with now? 
the uh yeah it comes yeah it comes with like eight thousand yeah um the storage options it increases you double it every time for two hundred dollars so two fifty six for two hundred more dollars five twelve for four hundred more dollars or a terabyte for eight hundred more dollars it's very terrible yeah you can get a ten gigabit Ethernet N based T Ethernet supporting ten gigabit Ethernet for a hundred dollars more. Yippee. <laughs> yeah. So you're looking at I, a pretty expensive computer, but that's if you want it as your main rig. If you want it as a headless build agent, you could probably do the bare minimum maybe and then add an external hard drive. I don't know. Your file IO is your 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 pain point, I think. No? Yeah. Uh, well, in, in general, yes, but when actually compiling iOS apps, like in my case, that's what you would use a Mac for. There is that last bit when you're compiling to native code, and that actually is CPU intensive, oddly enough. And unfortunately, it's not parallel, parallelized, so it's all just, you know, single core, how fast can you go performance there. But the rest of it is kind of uh, file I.O. bound. But I did notice one funny thing. Uh, it has a microphone, a uh, microphone, a speak, <laughs> a headphone jack on it, mm. whereas the new iPad does not. So I thought that was <laughs> kind of funny. The desktop That's computer funny. has <laughs> a headphone jack. Yeah, they they do have a good configuration difference, which is an i five processor, six core plus two fifty six for eleven hundred dollars. So it's kind of in the oh. middle there. So that yeah, might that's be a nice config, too. Yeah, that's definitely a good build machine. Yeah, I don't know what that i3 is. That sounds that sounds way lower than 3 and then 5 or 7. If you're on a budget budget, then I guess. But you know what I'm really excited for, Frank? Hmm. New MacBook Air. Oh, come on. iPad. All right, tell me about the MacBook Air. What's so exciting about the MacBook Air? Uh, well, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but it's like my MacBook Adorable, but way more powerful. That That's basically <laughs> it. That's the MacBook Air. They finally did it. Not in rose gold, though. So disappointing. Oh, that is mm-hmm. sad. I did hear it's thinner than, um, what, this 13-inch model is thinner than the old 11-inch model, something cool like that. Yeah. So are you going to get one of these? I don't know if I was getting a new one. This is a pretty sweet rig. I mean, it's it, more powerful it, it, than the, the the cute little one, right? Yeah, it puts the MacBook in a very weird space, which is like, why does it exist? Sort of, which is the the flip, which is previously, why did the MacBook yes. Air exist? So <laughs> exactly. I don't know what they're doing, but yeah. That is funny how they flipped it all in one month, though. That's good. All right, can we talk about the iPad yet? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. iPad, iPad, iPad. Go hit me. Why do you? Why do? Why do I care about this thing? I don't know. It's fast. That's all. <laughs> they finally changed the uh, bezel on it. That's nice. Um, we we've been rocking pretty much the same design for like the last five or six years. So just new is better, in my opinion. But no, um, I don't think I'm even gonna upgrade to it. It is pretty. The screen is bigger. Um probably a beautiful screen but it's not oled so i don't really care and um (laughs) and it's stupid fast you see all the uh benchmarks uh it's it's uh yeah it's beating a lot of laptops yeah that's cool though i love all that power it's it's powerful and expensive yeah oh and they changed the pencil design and i guess the new pencil doesn't work on the old ipad so that's kind of annoying (laughs) 
<laughs> so I think it's a beautiful machine. And if you didn't have a pro before, it's definitely a great pro to start with. But if you had the old pro like me, I think I'm going to skip this generation, though it is very nice and I do like it. Just makes me think what the next one will be. <laughs> yeah, it looks it, it looks absolutely beautiful. I think they did a great job with it. And they're clearly trying to make it a laptop, a, a, a laptop slash iPad competitor. You know, it, it's in between. Yeah. It's the best of both worlds in a way. It's very much a surface. It's trying to be a surface pro competitor, I would say. Yeah, and oddly, it looks a lot more like a surface now that it has those squared edges. So I think it's a little funny how they're going to differentiate themselves. Oh, and the uh, keyboard has two clicky positions now, so you can have two angles for your screen. See, it is Ooh. almost like a laptop, just, you know, yeah. infinite down to two angles. The big difference, Frank, is this is the first, this is the start of the revolution of, of all Apple devices moving to USB-C. Oh, God, see, I didn't even want to talk about it because I just dread it. Uh, how, how are you doing on the USB-C front? I'm not doing well. I just have one computer and I have one cable and I don't know what to do with that one cable. I have a phone, laptop, two laptops, a Nintendo Whoa. Switch. I mean, everything's right. USB-C, baby. It's all oh, happening. boy. How exciting. Okay, so I guess I've just been resisting the future. I'll get on the bandwagon. I'm all about buying lots of $30 devices to put in a box within five years. It's so much fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the the thing that they need to do is it's really going to be the iPhone. So if iPhone next year, they go all in, then you can have one charger for everything and, and it'll be a happy, beautiful world. And I think that they'll do it. I think this is the clear indication of things to come. Yeah, except I saw someone put up a buying guide for USB-C cables, and it was like, make sure you look for all this stuff on it. Make sure it's 4K, 60, and super power transfer version 2000 something. So there's a lot of, a lot of tricky stuff in this USB-C world that I'm not yeah. really looking forward to dealing with. Yeah, I just buy the official cables or... That's basically it. That's the problem is people buy it's just like even with the old USB micros, there's all these very, very cheap ones and you just buy a good cable or use the one that comes with it. That's what that's what I do. And yeah, uh, now we're back to the monster cables, gold plated era. So you're going to walk into a store like give me the best USB-C cable you got, buddy. It's true. It's like, it's... Yeah. Do you want the gold one? Sure. I want the gold one. Well, it's the same with lightning cables. You can buy a really cheap lightning cable or you can buy Apple's lightning cable and that <laughs> one's going to work a lot better and probably last longer. Yeah, yeah. But at least in that case, there's only two. There's Apple and there's not Apple. You kind of know what you're getting with the not Apple. That's true. <laughs> you could use the same for USB-C. There's Apple USB-C and then not Apple USB-C. So. <laughs> you're right, you're right. <laughs> All right, so Apple out of the way, people. So our Apple talk is over. We did. That it. was fun. I actually wasn't expecting that we would do it. So thanks for that. Yeah, you're welcome. And we need to talk a little bit about that because our topic today comes from a listener. And it's pretty intense because I had a lot of time to mess around with some of the new cool technology to help solve this problem. And Dan Miser on Twitter, um, which is at Dan Miser, he asked, great idea for the show is can you cover how you not only publish from a kind of publisher of a library perspective, but also as a consumer of libraries and NuGet packages, debug said source code. So for instance, I publish a new library. How do I publish that so developers can consume it and debug it easily 
inside of their application. Um, that's kind of what I'm taking away from it in, in general. Does that make sense, Frank? Yeah, totally. Um, uh, this is an exciting topic for me because I think several years ago, I knew absolutely nothing about it and I just kind of guessed at everything. But nowadays, I feel like I have somewhat of a good handle on it. And then you and I did some quick reading just to make sure we were both up to date. So <laughs> this should be fun. Yeah, there's two aspects of this to cover um, really is from a kind of developer standpoint, the consumption and the publishing, there's some similarities and some differences, but it breaks down into two aspects. One is this thing called debug symbols. And then the other aspect is like, how do I just debug the code, right? In general. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we should start with the timeless age old table tale of debug symbols. And I think it might be good to just say, what is a debug symbol? And what does that <laughs> look like from both aspects, Frank? <laughs> <laughs> is this my intro? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, thank you, James. Today's lecture is debug symbols. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So we've we've taken our source code. We've run it all through a compiler. The compiler emits machine code. That's great for the machine, but there's nothing left, no evidence of the source code left in that executable. That's normally how programs get compiled. That's how we've been doing it since the 70s. It's good. It's simple. The trick is when you want to debug your app, you want to know the names of things. So in the case of .NET, we have a lot of names that are actually always available to us, even without debug symbols. But I'm just going to mention it like we have type names, method names, parameter names, all that stuff that's actually uh, baked right into a .NET DLL. So you don't even need debug symbols for that stuff. That's interesting, right? Uh, it's, in, it's in the DLL. It's yeah. in the computer. That's the metadata. That's that's what mm. system.reflection accesses. So that's when you can take that and put it in like .peak, for instance, or some other decompiler, and it just shows you all the methods, all the names, all the goodies. Yeah, exactly. The decompiler is going a step farther where it, um, it actually uh, decompiles the instructions, but it doesn't need any debug information for any of that because there are already so many names and things. And in fact, um, on Unix, the ELF file format, which uh, is what uh, everyone uses on Linux as a binary format, that also contains a lot of names. But in that case, it's just function names because it's a simpler binary format. So that was just to say that executable files always have some level of information in them. They just don't have a lot. But names, names often come along. And you can strip all that out too with obfuscators, etc. Now, does does the other worlds of JavaScript or like Objective-C or Java, do they run into these same sort of issues where there's some information or is there any information in those other worlds like outside of .NET? Uh, so in general, yes, everyone runs into this problem, except the first one you mentioned is kind of a big exception, JavaScript. And the reason it's a big exception is JavaScript is usually shipped in source code form. And so mm. they never don't, they don't ship binaries of JavaScript. They could, but they don't. And if they did, they would have to make the same decision of what names are included in the binary and how well can you get back to the source code for debugging and all that from the binary. But JavaScript's funny. They just ship the source. So <laughs> no issues there. Oh. But everyone else oh. has. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this that, makes that's sense. What, yeah. Yeah, that's all the scripting languages get to take advantage of that. So Python, PHP, Perl, um, they ship the source. 
so they don't have to deal with this problem. But everyone else, the Javas, the C++s, the C Sharps, you know, all the .NETs, obviously, um, we all deal with it. Why didn't we just ship the source code? That's how SQLite worked in the beginning. We could have just done that. <laughs> Add that source just code, you know? Yeah, the thing is, um, typed compilers, we, we use strictly typed compilers. They, they're a little bit slower than dynamic compilers. So that's an issue. You don't want to actually compile everything from source. The other is security, James. You see people obfuscating their code they, or their DLLs already. You know, they don't want to ship their code. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So that's our problem yeah. is that we, we don't have any info besides what our base stuff goes. So I can't really yeah. get deep into the code. So how do we right. solve that? So now we're debugging and we're, we're in our code and everything's great because we have source code access to it. We have debug symbols, these magic things called debug symbols. And all these debug symbols do is relay, re, <laughs> relate parts of that binary file, the, that executable, to the source code. And also name some more names because names are always good for things. But it yes. will explicitly say... Uh, this IL instruction, this .NET instruction came from this line of source code, and it will have a full path to the document, c colon backslash my awesome project slash awesome file dot CS. You know, the full name is right there with a line number, a column number, in fact. And these are called sequence points. Doesn't really matter, <laughs> but that's what they're called in the debug files. So debug symbols are basically just a collection of names for things that weren't already named in the object file, the executable file. And it's also this correspondence of instructions back to source code lines. And that's what a debug symbol is. But does it have the source codes? Like if something happens, no. Oh, okay. No. And that that's the issue. It's just links. What it has is a path to the original document. And it's usually the full path, which is kind of funny. So if you're shipping PDBs around, debug symbols around, keep in mind that your build server path is probably going to get baked into it. So keep your directory names clean, people. <laughs> Got it. But that could still be really helpful when if you are debugging like even your own, like if you're debugging your own library, this makes a lot of sense because yes. it's on your machine. I'm debugging. I get the symbol. I get the thing. It pops up. And if I have the source code in the library, boom, it happens. Or if I'm in another app, I can go look at that file. Or even if it's on GitHub, I could at least go into the source code, read through the source code. So it sounds like it's like a step closer to what I'm looking for. Yeah. And ish. in fact, that it's kind of a nice feature that I can go to one directory, compile some library, take that DLL and move it around DLL and PDB. In this case, that's the symbols, the PDB file. They go together. I'm sure you've noticed. <laughs> and as long as I keep those two together and I move them around on my computer, I'll be able to debug into source code just fine because the paths baked into them will work on my computer. The issues come when I want to send out those PDBs for other people to use. Oh, so how does that happen? I mean, I imagine that I'm a NuGet library creator. I'm like, just throw those PDBs in there, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is the part I was super confused on in the beginning, because when I first started shipping NuGets, I just started putting the PDB files into the NuGet package and not 
really thinking anything about it. But if you follow what I was just saying before, they're absolutely useless. Um, A, none of the tools knew to look for PDB files in the packages in the early days. So that was just pointless. I didn't know that. So fun fact, don't even bother putting them in there. Uh, fact number two, the PDB is kind of useless because it can't point to source code or anything, or that source code pointed to my machine, and that doesn't help anyone at all. Got it. Okay. So we've had to develop new techniques uh, in order to complete the whole cycle of releasing a NuGet, also releasing its symbols, that PDB, and those are broken up into two, two packages nowadays. So two separate packages you upload. And the third step is linking that PDB, those paths in the PDB to actual source code that people can actually use to uh, debug on their machine. Mm, okay, so there's some instances here where we're there's some new tooling that will help those PDBs be more useful. Is that kind of what exactly? I'm That's it. That's it. And people have had interesting solutions in the past. Have you seen? Um, oh boy, what was the old decompiler called? I'm, I'm just having a mental blank block here. Uh, um, the one. Uh, come on, not IL Spy. That's the new open source one. What was it before? I'm Googling it right now. C sharp decompiler. Uh, I C sharp by the dial spy. No, that's the new uh, one. That's uh, the new one. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, whatever. Them. The old one, and I, and you can still get it. Uh, and if you pay for it, it does something very clever. It um it gets rid of the PDB problem. It says, well, just forget about PDBs. We have enough names in the DLLs already, and we're just going to decompile the instructions and generate our own PDBs and generate our own source code files so that you can do debugging right on your machine. So I should mention that, and it's super awesome. I think there's actually a few um, uh, products out there that you can pay for. As far as I know, they're all pay for where you can do this. So that means that you can debug anything but with the caveat that you're not debugging its original source code, you're debugging its decompiled source code. Oh, that's kind of cool. I like that it option. Is. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder if IL Spy will ever get that option. That'd be super yeah. cool. That'd be pretty cool. I think that in general, like when I think about, and I think about debugging code, I think that is the interesting part. I use a lot of, I use a lot of libraries in my application and I never had really thought about, I never had really thought about, oh, I want to debug this other library more than, oh, an exception occurred and it's thrown or something yeah. went wrong because I always thought like, oh, I am I am using this library and of course it's going to throw an exception if something goes wrong and I'll handle it, you know? So I didn't really understand like, why would I want to even debug into an external library, you know? That this was is, always my thought. <laughs> I never quite understood. It's 100% fair because this is like black box versus white box. I downloaded your library because I don't want to learn how any of this stuff works. I just want to get this task done. I just want to call your functions. So I'm totally on board with you there. Anytime I see a crash within someone else's code, I'm just like, I, you know, figure out a way not to call that code anymore because I don't <laughs> want to deal with it. <laughs> yeah. I think the benefit though that I think from it is in now that I think that now m almost everything is open source. What ends up happening is I think the scenario is this, which is that you go and you 
get an exception in your source code and it gives you maybe some information about the the method or the exception. So what you do is you go to the GitHub page, you navigate through the file structure, you try to find the version yes. that you're on and then you you try to <laughs> like, is this current or what is here? You know what I mean? So then you're trying to say like, is it a problem in my source code, what I'm passing in or is it a problem in their source code? And it kind of causes this big delay in development. Yeah, and I do this constantly. I, I spend a good chunk of the day because I never really debug into other people's source code, but I'm constantly reading other people's source code to figure out. You know, it could just be the operating system code. It could be um, a library I'm using. It could be Xamarin. It could be anything. And I do a little bit of everything. Uh, my favorite feature in Visual Studio for Mac is Command D to go to the definition of something, and if you don't have the source code to it, it actually decompiles it. And that's super nice. And there is fugit.org. And you can go to fugit.org. And it'll uh, show you source code for open source libraries. So you can do all of that there too. And then I do one other thing that's really terrible. And I'm curious if you've ever done this. You can blindly debug in Visual Studio, at least Visual Studio for Mac. And I'm pretty sure real Visual Studio too. <laughs> I called mm -hmm. it real. Uh, and that is you're, <laughs> you're debugging without symbols. So you can still say uh, step over, step into, step out of. And because it's .NET, there are actually names for a lot of things. So your call stack is usually pretty decent. You even um, get made up local variable names and argument names and things like that. And so you can actually... Uh, debug code, even though you don't have debug symbols for it, neither do you have source code for it. And what you get is just the locals, the watch table. And if you know variables, you can still inspect things. I do that, unfortunately, a lot. It's terrible, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, you get that dialogue and it's like you're you, it's, this dialogue in Visual Studio 2017 comes up and it, and it what it says is, you are kind of going into unmarked territory here. And um, are you sure you want to do this? Do you want this is we don't have a lot of information. We're going to do our best and kind of try to rock through this. Uh, and that that's that's really what ends up happening at the end of the day. From what I've found is Visual Studio tries to guide you through. I'm going to do as much as I possibly can. Um, and I'm just going to let you know, you know. Yeah. And I used to be terrified of that dialogue. The moment that came up, I'm like, escape, escape, abort, abort, get me out of this. <laughs> but these days, I just have the confidence. I'm like, yep, let's do this. We're going in. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like what NuGet is working on is some new automated tooling. Because to me, it's it's hard. The, the, the symbol thing was always hard because you there was like symbol servers and then you had to like publish things like you were saying to different places and different packages. And I was like, I don't, I don't know about that. You know, it's, it's something that I didn't want to do as a library creator because I didn't know how much advantage or not advantage, but how much yeah of an advantage it would be to the consumers of my library. And then kind of talking about this scenario of how deep down the rabbit hole of debugging do you want to get? I saw this demo. It might've been at build this year, maybe during the .NET uh, general session. I'm not sure. Maybe it was Hanselman that demoed it, but it's a technology called SourceLink that sort of started to bridge all of this together. Have you have you experienced SourceLink at all? 
No, other than I did know the word if you had asked me. And yes, because I read an article really quickly about it just before we started speaking. And I am super excited about it because it solves that big problem that I was mentioning of the paths on my local machine aren't at all helpful to anyone else. There needs to be a translation layer from all of that to some publicly available version of the source code. And it sounds like that's exactly what SourceLink is. Did I get it? Yeah. Yes, it absolutely is. A wonderful human being called Cameron Taggart. Uh, he created a library called SourceLink. And since then, it has been now adopted into the .NET Foundation and moved over nice. to the official .NET repo itself. Bravo, bravo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Way to get your name out. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I wanted to give, give out shout outs there because it is now kind of a Microsoft thing. It's supported by Microsoft, which means it's awesome. So the entire goal of SourceLink, besides it is the most amazing thing in the entire world, is that from a library creator, I'm James Montemagno, I'm creating libraries, maybe I'm using GitHub, Bitbucket, Azure DevOps, it doesn't matter, somewhere. What I do is I add a NuGet into my library, okay? Yep. And part of my CI cycle, I send it a compiler flag and I say, this is a continuous integration build and I'm gonna be you know, creating the, the NuGet now, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's it, okay? <laughs> Like I, that's, oh. I do literally nothing magic, else. magic. Now, what the flip side of the consumer gets is the most magical thing in the entire world, Frank, because when you put a breakpoint on a line of code from that library or you hit an exception, instead of seeing random information or going into some decompiled thing. Visual Studio will know that this NuGet was created with SourceLink and it put and it literally like puts the commit hash of what it is of, of that NuGet package into um, that NuGet. So Visual Studio can pull down the relevant files, the, the literal files and and the debug symbol. So it handles everything for you. And then you just debug directly into the code, like directly into the code. <laughs> and it's magical and amazing. And you can see all yeah. the locals, you can see everything and you can step through it. Everything that you would expect just works. It's crazy. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of the big part. There is the one step. It just works simplicity part because I think think you technically could have put URLs inside symbol files before and technically Visual Studio would have resolved them, but no one did it because we didn't know what URLs to put there and we certainly didn't know about like Git hashes or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that um, this is just a NuGet package that works very simply as like an extension mechanism on the existing build system. You know, it's magical, but it's not black magic. It's like allowed kind of magic, <laughs> approved mm -hmm. magic. I think that's also what makes it kind of special in my mind, just the, the niceness, the simplicity of its implementation in, in that regard. And then, yeah. yeah, it's a huge feature. That's an awesome feature. <laughs> so now we all can get real source code instead of, yeah, decompiled garbage or debugging blindly into things. Yeah. Now, I do want to 
I, I want to make one clarification, though, just from the library producer side. We still have two NuGet packages. One is kind of the executable library NuGet, and the other one is called the Symbols package, which gets uploaded to the Symbols server. NuGet has made it so you don't actually have to run two commands. They both get output at the same time. They both um, get uploaded at the same time, but they're technically two different packages. I just want that distinction there in case um, you're, you're new to this and making your first library. You're like, I thought it was all magic now. It's magic, but it's two pieces of magic. Yeah, you can. You there's a few things in there. Yeah, you're right. So you need to um, you need to kind of specify a few things inside of your CS proj file. And the 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 thing here though that's intriguing. Well, this is a beta currently for SourceLink. Is that the you're running your app, which means that the runtime and the debugger must also support it. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and your IDE. So yeah. currently that basically is Visual Studio 2017 and Visual Studio Mac. Say it. Say it. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. .NET Core. Good enough. It's a good start. And .NET Framework, I think. Well, And UWP, I believe. <laughs> okay. I like all the question marks. A lot of beliefs. It's good. I. So we put this in Xamarin Essentials because it was requested and we said, why not? Even though you can't really use it for anything because iOS and Android don't support it just yet. Uh, uh, I I don't I'd have to I know it's on the backlog somewhere. There's something because I put in a, a issue somewhere to support this. So I'm sure hopefully it'll happen at some point. But I think it is some work to make make things happen because I was. I was mm-hmm. investigating SourceLink even further, and I have to find the repo of where I put it. But uh, I think the mono, I think it's on the mono runtime thing somewhere. So, uh, but yeah, so that's the, the only gotcha currently is there's no reason not to do it. That's the thing because once other runtimes or other things support it, then it will just work. You won't have to recompile your thing at all. It would just literally work. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, so even the, even if Visual Studio for Mac. It doesn't support it right now. I'm still personally going to do it with all my projects just because it'll just light up one day and that'll be wonderful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yeah, life will be good. And I use VS Code a bunch anyway, so that'll be fine. Yeah, there you go. And I I will say this, that um, there's always a fallback. I like to have a fallback plan, Frank. And uh, uh, often I do work with libraries that are maybe Uh, older or have dependencies and sometimes they're not updated to source link or they're on ios and android i need to debug them and there's only one way to do it frank no don't do it james don't do it i know what you're gonna say you're, don't do it you, you you're gonna have to just clone that repo locally and just add those cs projects to your to your application no. just do it do no, it just the do mess it mess that you are creating it, it, it hits all my ocd problems the file um, directories you know what, you, what, what would you name them <laughs> where would you, you put could them? do is you could add them as a sub module just sub module yes. those oh, things yeah. frank sub module solve all problems and don't create any at all <laughs> they're a win-win <laughs> situation it is well i you know i uh i for one of the most complex libraries out there which is my in-app billing one mm-hmm. the it's it's so hard to debug in-app billing that I have a, a sample app that 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 includes all of them is a test project. But when you want to put it in your app, 
sometimes it's just so hard or you want to modify and not wait for people that to debug it properly. I, I can't just get a copy of your app or you just can't easily debug this. So the, the thing that you need to do is uninstall the NuGet, pull in that source code, and just debug mm. it. Just mm. I know it's not elegant and I know it's not pretty, <laughs> but it's the only way. I don't know any other way. I don't know any other yeah. fallback besides that. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to agree with you because God knows I've done this a hundred times. <laughs> I'll probably do it tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it, it happens, unfortunately. I try to be a little better than you uh, when, it, when I do this terrible thing. I try to compile the project separately and just copy over the binaries because of the thing I mentioned before that you can move those binaries around just fine and debugging will work because the paths are on your machine. So I'll try to just build it separately, copy the things in. I might even just overwrite them in the NuGet package. That's how kind of tricky and evil I'll get. And then things will just light up and work. And I do that. And that's terrible. We should be ashamed of ourselves. I can't believe you mentioned this. We're supposed to be talking about good programming on this show, right? Yeah. Yeah. The best practices. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's fair, though. I mean, when in doubt, you got to get your job done. And if that's what it takes, then yeah, for sure, do it. Sad. Sad puppy face. Sad. Sad, but it does it. I want to mention uh, some happy topics, more future topics, because you Ooh, went to you went it. to the sad zone before I got to talk about the future stuff. Still talking about more features that aren't quite implemented, <laughs> but are partially, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but are partially implemented and work in places. <clears throat> so one uh, fascinating thing uh, that's it, that's been new. I, I I unfortunately got really deep into the symbols world for many weird reasons and. I learned that these PDB files that we've been using forever, we actually had a big format change in them. Like the actual on-disk format changed. We keep using the file extension PDB, but it really did change. And yeah, and it was a recent change, and the change was a good thing. It decoupled all the Windows-y stuff from PDBs. PDBs were traditionally a Windows technology. And it decoupled all that stuff to the point where .NET Core could use PDBs and Mono could use PDBs. Up to that point, Mono was using MDBs and .NET Core used nothing. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So that was a cool time. But a funny fallout of that work was you can actually embed the symbols directly into your normal executable DLLs now. So you don't actually even need a PDB file anymore. It just embeds itself right into the same DLL. So it's a funny new option that they have. And most things support it. I'm going to be like you. End every statement with a question. With the word most, probably, will work. <laughs> will work. We assume that it will work. We're going to go for it. <laughs> but it's cool because I, I like that future because then we're not chasing down two files. And we don't. It, when you are doing all this stuff locally, I don't like, oh, you got to remember to bring the PDB along with the DLL. The reason we haven't done this in the past is those stupid PDB files are giant. And so want, want, you just don't want it in there. But, but now, okay, so that's kind of new. You ready for the new newness? Yeah, you can... the new hotness, that hot hotness. Ready. <laughs> so instead of source link, which is awesome and all, but requires, let's say, a network connection, because you still got to go out to Git or whatever and fetch the source code, you can actually embed the source code not in the NuGet package, which we've done in the past, but right into the DLL itself, right along Ooh. with the symbols. 
Yeah. So you can have a super fat single DLL that contains the executable, the debug symbols, and the source code all in one super giant awesome file. And that, yeah, I kind of love that just from like a future preserving perspective, because that's literally everything you need. It's all the source code. It's everything all in one nice little file. And I don't know exactly what all the use cases are for that. <laughs> like, why would you need it in a, one just one file? But I love the idea of it. And I love that maybe that would be the future where we can actually just ship around the single file that is source code and everything that you need and just keep it simple. I like that because I will say that back in the day, if I was a developer and I was a publisher, I was, a, I was always under the assumption, like, how can I make my package small, lightweight, make it easy to download? But now, if, like, my NuGet package is a meg or two or 10 megs even, I don't know, it's all cash. Like, I don't think I really care all that much. And disk space is, is easier. I'm not saying release a half a gig, you know, <laughs> NuGet package. But if my NuGet packages are like 10, you know, 15 megs and they have all of this information in it, I'd be okay with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you should not care at all about the NuGet size package because the majority of your time is going to be spent with a cached version of it, as you said. And the other time is a build server. And who cares about the build server? Let it deal with all that stuff. I mean, the only important thing is uh, the code size, the executable that's inside of there. But even that with how aggressive like the Xamarin linker is and stripping code that you don't use out, you kind of you're kind of safe there, too, as long as your code's not all super interlinked with itself. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I like Big that. packages. That's great. <laughs> oh, I want it. Just make it easy for everybody. That's what I want. I mean, I know it's a hard I know it's easy to say, just make it easier. Make it just fix all of our problems, you know, but uh, mm -hmm. one day it sounds like it's getting there. Oh, I want that. <laughs> Give it to me now. Give it to me. Yeah. Now. Yep. So I look forward to the source linking and all that stuff coming to Visual Studio for Mac. I think you might know a couple people at Microsoft, so hopefully you can get that going. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. I'll see what Good. I can do. Thanks, James. All right. You're welcome, Frank. Anything I can do for you, that's what I'm about. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, Frank, anything, anything else you want to talk about? No, I just remind people, don't use submodules. They're terrible. They slow down your build and they create terrible Git messes. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. You only want to do that when you're debugging, right? You don't oh, want to. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to leave that in there. You're not going to. Okay. You're okay. not going to clone the code and leave it in there. No, no, no. You're going to contribute back, get a new NuGet package, and then pull it in there. That's bravo, what you're do. bravo, bravo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to make sure we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah. So. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's uh, merge conflict. Uh, I'm surprised that we somehow got through all of this debugging stuff uh it was a super fun topic because i'm i'm happy to see all the innovation here that's really going to improve the lives of developers so um i'm excited i'm excited about that yeah <sighs> and actually i think i had a bunch more topics written down so we might revisit the debugging category again turned out yes. it was a little bit of fun I was a little skeptical yeah, good when you mentioned this topic to me. Like debugging. <laughs> well, uh, debugging sounds terrible. We'll go to mergeconflict.fm. There's a contact button on there. You can send us an email. You can tweet at us at mergeconflict.fm. You can let us know what you think, right? And, and, and go from there. What other topics of debugging do you want us to help with <laughs> and talk about? I'm always learning more all the time. So let us know. 
Um, yeah, that's it. You can, of course, you know, subscribe on all the podcast feeds. You can check out soundbite.fm. I'll put it in the show notes for all the great podcasts on our network, such as ooh, a podcast that I and you are on recently, Trinspo. Trinspo.com is our travel inspiration podcast. I listened to your episode, Frank. It was amazing. Oh, did you enjoy it? That's so nice of you to say. You, you know, you always feel paranoid telling travel stories because you think about like slideshows and all that. And you never want to bore people. So that's nice of you to say. <laughs> yeah, it was so cool. It was your journey and your story across um, one of the deserts in Egypt, correct? Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, I, I did it without many brain cells, without many um, money dollars in my pocket, with a big smile on my face. And somehow I got across the desert. I don't know how. So I got to tell yeah. a story about it. And you just it had an episode, good. but I haven't gotten to listen to it yet. And I look forward to it. And yours is about Cuba, you said? Yeah. So what's cool is that uh, this is uh, Heather's podcast. And every every 10th episode, so she always interviews people telling their travel inspiration stories or their unique travel stories. And every 10th episode... She does one where I interview her about some of her travels. So this was her 20th Uh episode. Yes. That's fun. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm looking forward to it. Cool. And this is fun because it's a previously she told a a story when she was in South Korea. And this one was when her and I went to Cuba. So it's mostly her talking, but a little bit of me giving my inside sort of scoop on things. So it's pretty cool. But yeah, go check it (laughs) out. Put the links in the show notes. Check it out on all the great podcasts. So that's it, Frank. That's going to do it for this Merge Conflict. So until next time, I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace.